This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hi, everybody. This is Carrie, one of your TraumaCast moderators. Just wanted to give you a heads up on this upcoming TraumaCast. The sound quality is not great until about the five-minute mark. It just has a bit of a tin can quality. The rest of it sounds uh, fine. I also want to let you know we've heard your feedback that sometimes the sound quality can be frustrating and, and difficult to listen to. I hope you've noticed an improvement over the past year. And rest assured, the entire TraumaCast team and online education committee is continually working to find better and better platforms to bring you a high-quality TraumaCast. So I hope you enjoy this next one. Thanks. Welcome back to another edition of TraumaCast. I'm joined by my co-moderator, Dave Morris, and we're here with Mansoor Khan, and we're going to span seven different time zones to bring you a TraumaCast on complex duodenal, biliary, and pancreatic trauma. Dave, thanks so much for joining me. Yep, glad to be here. Thanks. And Mansoor, if you would uh, introduce yourself and just kind of tell us a bit about yourself uh, for the listeners. Oh, hello, everyone. My name is Mansoor Khan. I currently work as a trauma surgeon at St. Mary's Hospital, uh, which is in the northwest of London and part of the Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. I'm also currently active duty in the Royal Navy uh, with titles of senior lecturer in military surgery, as well as the head of surgery for the Royal Navy, advising medical director general. So, Mansour, in addition to working at St. Mary's Trauma Center in downtown London, as well as your deployments that you do with the Royal Navy, um, you also teach the DSTS course. Could you uh, tell the listeners, what is DSTS course and uh, how does that relate to trauma? So it's a the definitive surgical trauma skills course run out and by the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And it's a two-day cadaveric workshop, which basically concentrates on resuscitative surgery and how to get vascular control. So it's aimed at the resuscitative surgeon. And the key aspect of this course is it's over two days, but it relies on expert faculty from around the UK, around the world, to impart their knowledge in a forum over cadavers. And we use fresh frozen cadavers. Sure. And I've been a, an instructor in that course, and it, it's really nice. It's very similar to the American course called Asset. But one thing I've always not liked about Asset is it's so much information in one day. And the DT, DSTS course over two days, it's just it's a more uh, manageable pace. Yes, I totally agree. And then there's a, a adjunct book that goes along with this, correct? Yes. Yeah, so um, it took about two to three years in the making. Um, we Myself and my co-director, Morgan McMonagall, edited this book, and it's basically a companion to any operative trauma course. We call it the companion to the Definitive Surgical Trauma Skills course because we are both co-directors. But in essence, it is a great reference guide for people who haven't done the course or who are running other courses or just want to know how to get uh, operative access and control hemorrhage. Yeah, it's a really nice kind of uh, handy to do like, hmm, the patient's being wheeled to the OR. Let me look at this quick chapter on how do I get that brachial artery again if you haven't done it in a while. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's it basically, yeah, it just it's exactly what it does. Lovely. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, I think it's afternoon for you, mid-morning for me, and early morning for Dave. So I'm glad we're able to coordinate this. All right, let's get started. We're going to do a bunch of case scenarios today. Uh, first case, you have a woman in her mid-40s. She was kicked by a horse. Her vitals are normal. She comes in with acute abdominal pain and a horse print right in the middle of her upper abdomen. She's stable on it for CAT scan, and the only thing you really see on the CAT scan is there's a little bit of fluid in the lesser sac, and she's hemodynamically stable. So, Mansoor, what do you do next? So this lady's come in, and the most important thing for me here, given the history, is the mechanism of injury. For you to be struck by a horse is quite an exceptional amount of force, especially to cause a hoof print on the abdomen. And given the location where she's got it, I'm actually suspicious of an intraperitoneal or a retroperitoneal injury. So do you get more imaging? Do you try, I mean, all we see is really some fluid in the lesser sac. There's no free air. There's no active bleeding. Do you go or do you try to figure out what's going on? Yeah, so given the fact that she's got no free air or a massive amount of free fluid, I'm not too concerned about hollow viscous injury. But as you're both aware, that sort of a zone is specifically um, susceptible to pancreatic injury. So given the fact there is some fluid around, is it lesser sac? In the, just in the lesser sac, that's all we've got. Yeah, just in the lesser sac. I'm actually really suspicious of a pancreatic injury and Given the early nature of this imaging, the injury may not be that apparent on the imaging undertaken. And so I'll throw this out to either uh, Dave uh, or Mansoor. Would you get an MRCP or ask uh, GI to do a ERCP to see if you can identify an injury, or would you go to the OR? Uh, boy, I'll, I'll take a stab at it, uh, so to speak. I, I don't know. Going... Um right to the OR for just a little bit of fluid, even even in the setting of a high mechanism. Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I, this may be a patient that I choose to observe for a little while, um, see how the abdominal exam changes, maybe check some uh, pancreatic enzymes. But I think it would sit and nag at me, and so I might want to get further imaging with uh, like an MRCP or something like that to try to delineate it, even though the sensitivity isn't going to be great. And how about you, Mansoor? The Americans seem to have an absolute adoration with MRCPs. How do you do it in London? No, I mean, uh, to be fair, if you go from the least invasive to the most invasive, that's a really good algorithm to go through. Uh, as I say, I still suspect with this person there is pancreatic trauma there. But if time allows, and more importantly, if the patient's physiological parameters allow, that would give you time to undertake. I'd go for an MRCP. But you said that the patient were, had an acute abdomen. I mean, she is does. that general, generalized peritonite, or peritonitic or just localized? Uh, very it... focal pain in the upper abdomen. No, no uh, peritonitis in the lower abdomen. She's hemodynamically normal. Her heart rate's in the 90s. Her blood pressure's in the 130s. Um, she's satting fine. She's breathing, you know, a little tachypnic because of pain. Um, but otherwise, she looks okay. So we take her to MRCP. Mm -hmm. So two hours have gone by. We get our MRCP. Her vitals are still fine. She still hurts, but her vitals are normal. And the MRCP demonstrates that you've got a frank uh, pancreatic disruption of the main pancreatic duct and the mid-body of the pancreas. Now what? Me? Okay, I'll go up. Dave, I'll up. Shall I start with this one off? So, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so mid-body of the pancreas, it's a ductal injury. So 
diesel car in operation. I mean, you can try and drain it, you can try and do a whole lot of it, but what you'll just do is a delaying tactic. Now, my usual method of thinking is if it's to the left of the superior mesenteric vein and the portal vein, you can probably get away with a distal pancreatectomy. And if it's to the right, you know what? You're in some form of trouble because you're along the head of the pancreas and all those structures. So I would probably, and realistically, be teeing this person up for a distal pancreatectomy because it's over and done with. You've actually addressed the problem rather than going in there, trying to do an ERCP, put a stent in, drain everything out, putting drains radiologically into the collection. Sometimes it's just just do the right thing the first time around and get it over and done with. Dave, what do you think? Same thing or would you try to do stenting first? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I, I agree with uh, Mansoor on this one. The, um, you know, if you think about a blunt force trauma that is going to disrupt the duct, the surrounding parenchyma is going to be damaged as well. And I think um, expecting this to behave in the same fashion as like a, you know, islet cell enucleation where you can patch it or something like that, I think is, is uh, wishful thinking. Um, and, you know, what I was always taught, the, the rule of thumb I always taught was uh, the pancreas is kind of like a crawfish, you know, you bite the tail and you suck the head. And so <laughs> if it is, if it is to the, uh, to the patient's left of the, you know, the neck of the pancreas, I agree, a distal pancreatectomy is probably going to be the most direct route uh, through this. And then Mansoor, take us through briefly the kind of critical steps of doing a traumatic distal pancreatectomy. Well, luckily for this patient, you are not rushed to do anything. They're physiologically not compromised, so you can actually take your time. Me personally, um, you've got a variety of incisions you can approach the patient through, but given the fact that this is a blunt trauma, I would actually stick with a midline incision, predominantly concentrating on the upper midline. Go in to the lesser sac, identify everything, you obviously identify all the anatomy, and then starting off at the splenic hilum, very, very carefully lift up the pancreas beyond the fracture site. And my personal preference is firing a TA stapler proximal to the injury, so you've got some good tissue and then probably covering it with some tissue or some form of chemical intraperitoneal adhesive. And in this situation, would you try to do a splenic sparing or would you just take the spleen with you? No, there is no, in this circumstance, if the patient is well with no evidence of splenic injury, there is no massive rush to get this operation done. I would actually try and do a splenic preservation. Excellent. Next case, stab to the right upper quadrant comes in, you do some imaging and you do an X-slap. What you discover in your X-slap is the knife has gone through the transverse colon and then right through the middle of the common duct without any pancreas injury or duodenal injury. How do you manage that? Mansoor, we'll start with you since you're on the hot seat today. Ah, excellent, thank you. So there is no other vascular injury. The patient is otherwise well. Pretty stable. Yep. Uh, you're in the operating room and what you're seeing mm -hmm. is that the transverse colon has the knife go straight through it. And then on the back side, the only thing that got injured is that you've got a 50% disruption of the common duct. That's a simple laceration. Okay. And just for clarification uh, purposes, is that above or below the cystic duct? Below the cystic duct. Ah, okay. So what I would do first of all with this patient is I would quickly um, assess how is the colonic damage, 
how much of the circumference is involved of the gut if you would add it together for the transverse colon? So we'll say that the knife itself is about two centimeters wide. Mm -hmm. So you have two centimeter laceration on the anterior transverse colon, go straight yep. through and have a two centimeter laceration on the posterior side of the colon, and then your 50% laceration of the duct. Okay, so what I would do with this one is quickly whip stitch the colonic perforation because ideally given that degree of cut through, I'll probably just do a segmental resection and join that up probably later. But given the fact that the hepatic duct is injured beyond the cystic duct, at that point, it gets all of its blood flow from the retroduodenal artery coming up at the three and nine position. So are we talking disruption at the three o'clock position? I'm trying to visualize this in my head. Sure. No, I appreciate the clarity for the listeners, too. So the disruption is at the nine o'clock. So it's on the lateral side okay. and it comes through halfway. Well, if it's a clean cut through there, you've got obviously a surgeon has multiple uh, multiple weapons in their arsenal, shall we say, uh, from you can start from the bare minimum, which is a primary repair. Unfortunately, if you try to do a primary repair, there's a high degree of stricture formation. You can put a T-tube in, which allows you to actually maintain the diameter of the duct itself without narrowing. Or in extreme circumstances, you could do a hepaticojejunostomy. But given the location of this, I would probably think about putting in a T-tube, specifically a latex T-tube, to allow for fibrosis and externally drain. And then once I'd done that aspect of it, I would go back and do a segmental resection of the colon, but in the meantime, making sure there were no other injuries. And Dave, how about you? Any other thoughts on how you'd manage this injury? I think the same thing. I think uh, primary repair over a T-tube, um, it gives the patient a shot at healing this without more, uh, more extensive surgery. And you don't burn any bridges if there, are, if there is a you know, stricturing that happens or something down the road. You still probably will have a great length of extra hepatic bile duct that you can go back and do a hepatic OJ to if you need to. Is there any role to try to do internal stenting with ERCP in conjunction with surgical repair? So, I mean, from, to be fair, if you're thinking about putting a T-tube in, you could potentially put in a J-stent intraoperatively. I mean, you don't need to do it endoscopically. You've got the laceration in front of you, pop down one tube down the other with a colodohoscope, have a look, and then go up and you know exactly where you are, and you could actually suture above that. The risk there, yet again, is because you're not doing it over a T-tube, you risk narrowing. Even with a stent in, suturing over the top of it, you will narrow, and the only thing that will maintain the patency will be the um, tensile strength of the stent you have inside. Great. Next case. You have a stab wound to the left upper quadrant. Clearly has uh, violated uh, fascia. You get a little bit of momentum sticking out in the trauma bay. Patient is stable-ish. You know you need to go to the OR. Systolics are about 100, heart rate's about 110. You get into the OR, you do your X-lap, and you see that the stab wound kind of goes right through the duodenum at the ligament of trites. It looks like it's about 50% of the wall. There doesn't seem to be a major vascular injury. It seems to be have gone through just fatty tissue right into D3, D4, where it comes out. How are you going to manage that one? So the key with this is actually getting the exposure. Everyone's worried about the fourth part of the duodenum ligaments or trites because it's down in the deepest parts of the abdomen. It is that retroperitoneal, intraperitoneal zone, which gives people angst. But realistically, if you can just do a cattel brush 
fully cockerize the duodenum and proverbially throw the right hemicolon over the patient's left shoulder, you will be able to see the fourth part of the duodenum and the proximal jejunum in continuity. Uh, if it's a simple, chances are this is going to be a lot of contamination across their biliary. But if you can get away with it, and if the patient's physiology and the contamination allows, you may consider doing a primary repair or a resectional repair. If the patient is totally physiologically not coping, I would just staple off the actual area and come back in once they're more physiologically able to handle the demands of an operation. And I think that's an interesting point you made. So the, I purposely made this to stab wound to the left upper quadrant, but to get to D3, D4, you're proposing that the best way to get there is actually to do a right medial uh, uh, visceral rotation, not to do a left medial visceral rotation. Is that correct? Yeah, because you want to make sure that you've got the injured section is the duodenum and the jejunum. So you need a good view of the duodenum and de uh, jejunum. A bit like vascular exposure, you need good proximal and distal control. So you're doing the same thing with this, except with a hollow viscous. And then uh, I keep throwing the stab wounds to Mansour because when I worked in London with him, we didn't have any gunshot wounds because they just simply <laughs> don't have that many guns in London. So Dave, I'll throw it out to you. Let's say instead of being a stab wound to the left upper quadrant with a D3 injury, you actually have a gunshot wound with a medium caliber bullet that does a through and through. And the only uh, visceral injury that you have is about a 50% disruption of D3. Is your management different because it's a gunshot instead of being a stab? Well, I think you just have to count on there being a much higher degree of local tissue damage. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think it's easy to sort of think about these uh, in very discrete, very academically sterile situations. But, you know, you've, if, you've, if you've done one of these cases, uh, which I, I know you, you all have, it, it's, it's like hamburger back there. I mean, you, you, it's <laughs> yes. hard to identify what, you know, what structures are connected to which, and there's a lot of... Uh, potential for destruction. So I, I think, um, if anything, you need to have even better visualization, more extensive mobilization. You know, these these uh, injuries are highly lethal, number one. And so the chance to be able to sort of perseverate in an academic fashion about should I, you know, come this way or the other is, is, is not often what happens in reality. I think um, if you are fortunate enough to have a stable patient with an injury right there, I mean, because you know, a shot right there, you're probably also talking about an injury to the inferior vena cava or the aorta. Um, you're very likely to also have injury to the to the uh, pancreas there. And so, um, you know, getting exposure and getting adequate uh, visualization of all the different tissues may be very challenging. And so I think you have to be much more uh, decisive about making tough decisions. Like, do you just decide to resect, uh, you know, this, this, it, gunshot to D3 may put you in the realm of where you have to do a trauma whipple, which, you know, I've only ever been involved in one successful survivor of a trauma whipple. And uh, so I, it's, I, I think, yeah, I think the management is very different in terms of, you know, what you're able to do and what you're able to see and, and repair versus resect. Would you have the same approach that Mansour was discussing, or if you're trying to see D3, D4 jejunum, you actually do a right medial rotation? Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I love that exposure. I think, uh, you, you know, mobilize the right colon and the, and the duodenum with a coker maneuver and then take down the root of the mesentery. You can flip the entire viscera up onto the patient's chest and have an exposure of, you know, basically the whole inframesocolic uh, compartment right in front of you, easy to access. So I, I, I love that exposure, even for, you know, if there's a left-sided trajectory, I think the right-sided approach may be cleaner planes 
and may allow better visualization. Yeah, it's pretty, and it's pretty bloodless all the way across until you get to your injury. So it allows you to kind of outflank the injury and then just go after it. Whereas I find if you come from the left, you're kind of going right into the hamburger, like you described, without actually getting your exposure yet, and now you have to deal with it. Right. Um, all right, well, speaking of trauma whipples, so for either of you, because obviously, although Mansour deals with most, mostly stabs in London, he certainly deals with gunshot wounds um, in the military. You have a gunshot wound to the right upper quadrant. It injures the transverse mesocolon, and the bullet actually gets lodged right in the head of the pancreas. It's a small to medium caliber bullet. Uh, what, what do you do? You've got a bullet. Patient's fairly stable, but you know that you're heading to the OR. How do you manage this? Mansour, I'll throw that out to you first. Oh, your generation, your generosity is boundless. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a GSW. It's gone in there. And um, as our old boss used to say to us, let the patient prove to you that they're well. Don't let them prove to you that they're unwell. So I'm assuming this patient's sick. They're going to go to the OR. Best case scenario, you've probably got maybe one hollow viscous injury and it's embedded in the pancreatic parenchyma for which there will be a parenchymal injury. Worst case situation, as Dave just mentioned beforehand, there is a lot of clockwork around there. I mean, even the fact that the patient may be physiologically non-compromised, that does not exclude a venous injury, especially as they're low pressure systems. So given the stuff around there, super, superior mesenteric vein, you know, the portal vein, the aorta, IVC, SMA, all that lot, I will approach this very cautiously and make sure I have everything ready for badness to occur. So do you think there's a role in trauma? Because like Dave mentioned, he had one patient he's been involved with who survived a trauma whipple. Mm -hmm. Is there time to do, should you ever be doing a trauma whipple or should you really just be doing, you know, damage control? No. So control bleeding, control the uh, uh, enteric spillage and get out. So with this kind of situation, the patient, if they come in, God, they've got to be very lucky just to have a parenchymal injury. Chances are everything is going to be injured. And I don't really like the word trauma whipple. I like the word, you know, a it's a resection you're going to do, but it's going to be a staged whipple. You'll get rid of the pancreatic head, the duodena, make sure you have vascular control and then come back in at a later time to do the reconstruction. You don't want to be doing that acutely because the patient may be an extremist. The physiology, you wouldn't put a bowel, a small bowel anastomosis together in somebody an extremist. And you definitely don't want to do a hepaticojejunostomy or pancreaticojejunostomy in somebody an extremist. So I would do this as a stage procedure if the patient required it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. The fastest Whipple I ever saw was about three hours. And, it, and even then, I mean, it was amazing how fast these surgeons were moving. Um, and the patient survived it. But it's one of those, like, how many surgeons truly can pull that off and win consistently? Dave, what has been your experience with these pancreatic head injuries? Yeah, I think what you what you're really for exactly what Monster said, you, you the first operation is just to control massive hemorrhage and contamination. Um, you know, the second one is where you think about more of a targeted resection if they survive to that point. And then maybe even at second or even maybe third is when you try to do a reconstruction. And, and again, it, it takes a very special patient to, to uh, survive the insult to get to that point. But I, I think, uh, you know, trying to do a careful, you know, uh, resection of the pancreatic head coming across the neck, all of that in the setting of an, of an acute abdomen with, you know, blood and guts in your face is, it's, it's, uh, you know, it sounds great on paper, but in reality, it just doesn't happen that way. 
Let's talk about a couple of fun cases. Simple right upper quadrant stab wound, you go to the OR and the gallbladder is stabbed. Is there ever a case where you would just do a primary repair of the gallbladder or do you just take it out? Take it out. Yeah, I would take that out. The gallbladder is the seat of all evil anyway. And so <laughs> I look for an excuse to remove it whenever I can. All right, stab to the left upper quadrant and you've got a splenic injury. Uh, you're in there because there's lots of free air. You've got a transverse colon injury. You fix that primarily, but now you've got this laceration to the spleen. How much effort do you put forth in trying to save the spleen or just take it out? I'll be honest with you. I've seen a couple of these, and when you go in, there is actually no evidence of splenic bleeding. I mean, if there's no evidence of active hemorrhage or oozing from the spleen, I may wrap it with something. I mean, when I mean wrap it, just that area with some Surgicel or a bit of Flo-Seal, and leave it be. But if it's bleeding in front of me or even looking slightly suspicious, it comes out. So, all right, so you wrap it, Mansour. Uh, that sounds fine. But what if it's like, well, can I just take maybe the bottom bit of it? Do you no. do partial splenectomies? You don't try to no. keep just a bit no. of the spleen? When you're, just, you're just asking for trouble if you're messing around with this kind of thing. These patients, when they come in, they've got lots of injuries and there is no, I mean, my personal view is I don't play around with these partial splenectomies because it may bleed even more. You may require to give the patient blood. So if there is any doubt, the, the spleen is out. All right, next case. We have a young guy in his 20s who is riding one of the ATV motor vehicles, um, has blunt trauma when he hit a tree. Mm -hmm. And in uh, his CAT scan, there's a bunch of fluid in the right upper quadrant. So you go to the OR, he's hemodynamically normal-ish. And what you see is there's actually just an avulsion of the right hepatic duct. The rest of it looks fine. It's just that right hepatic duct literally got torn in half and it's just spilling bile. What do you do about that? I mean, that's really unusual to have just an isolated right hepatic duct injury from blunt trauma without having any vascular injury. I assume there is no vascular injury, is there? No, no. These are the academic questions that we're going to talk about on TraumaCast so that we're in the middle of having all six of these injuries at once. We can think it through. <laughs> <laughs> well... Obviously, um, in my mind, I always go from what can I do, which causes the patient least possible harm, all the way up to major reconstructive surgery. I mean, if this is a total disruption of the duct, we're still okay on the right duct because it's supplied by the right hepatic artery, so we know the vasculature is okay across there. Your options, yet again, a bit like a distal uh, common bile duct injury is the potential to put a t-tube in there um, or you could do a hepaticojejunostomy with also having a post-operative ERCP to actually open up and allow for pressure-free drainage of the biliary system. And you had mentioned earlier Mansour you said specifically you want a latex t-tube. Why, why is it latex? Because it um, promotes fibrosis. If you get that fibrotic reaction, you create that channel, which when you actually pull the T-tube out of, it will collapse down and preferentially drain down the main biliary limb. And here's something I've always wondered about T-tubes. So I, I put a T-tube in, which I've done. It fibrosis, we let it heal for a number of weeks, and then we pull it out. But doesn't that still leave me with a hole in the duct? It does, but if you imagine the actual T-tube, it looks like a T, but the vertical portion of the T is really, really long. So that causes a fibrotic uh, tract all the way from the bile duct through 
the adjoining viscera. So the moment you pull the T-tube out, that tract collapses on itself. Mm. And because it's such a long distance for the fluid to travel up, it preferentially goes down the uh, bile duct itself as opposed to coming up the fibrotic tract. Yeah, it's like any other fistula. You know, the, the bile is lazy, so it follows the path of least resistance. So, and how long do you guys leave your T-tubes in? Assuming the patient survives the injury, they become physiologically normal within the week, and they're discharged either to rehab or to home. How long before you're ready to pull that T-tube? I give it six weeks. I'm same. Do you do any clamping and LFT checks or see how much volume comes out? Does that matter? I, I tend to do a tubogram before I decide to pull it out. So send them to radiology, get them to squirt some dye down there, make sure the luminal patency is intact. There's no distal blockage going on because the worst, last thing you want to do is pull that T-tube out and there's a distal blockage. Sure. How about you, Dave? Do you do imaging before you pull your T-tube? Yeah, I pretty routinely will do a cholangiogram through the tube before pulling it. Um, Dave, did you have any um, case scenarios that you wanted to bring up today that you're thinking of? Um, you know, I had a case um, a little while ago where I had multiple gunshot wounds, and uh, one was through the body of the, of the liver itself, kind of through the right lobe, with some venous oozing. One was through the stomach and actually grazed the back end of the um, of the portal vein, which was actively bleeding. And another one was through kind of the upper portion of the liver, right, uh, right below the diaphragm. So you're basically at the level of the hepatic veins, which were injured and actively bleeding. Is there any way out of that scenario, uh, Monsoor Carey, in your experience? I, I, uh, I did all the tricks. You know, from top knife, I made the balloon uh, mm -hmm. out of the Penrose drain and put it through the tract. And I, I got access to the inferior vena cava inside the pericardium. You know, the 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 yep. access wasn't a problem, and I, I basically was headed towards total vascular isolation of the liver. But um, ultimately, the patient still died. Is that is that an unplayable lie, or is there this is sort of like confessional? Is there no. uh, is there anything I did wrong? What would you do differently? That's a bad injury. I mean, especially when you're talking about either retrohepatic caval or a hepatic vein injury. Um, to top that, you've got a portal vein injury. That's a hard case. That's a really, really hard case. That's one where you want your friends in there with you with any piece of equipment and judgment to help you. So, no. I mean, you did all the right things from what I can tell. The last throw of the dice would be total vascular uh, isolation. Uh, did you clamp the descending thoracic aorta or the celiac, um, supraceliac? We did uh, initially because he was unstable. We, we, were, we had his abdomen open, so we put a supraceliac aortic clamp on to try to get some slowing down of the inflow, but uh, eventually we were able to remove the clamp. And actually, the patient did make it out of the OR. We had what we thought at the time was reasonable vascular control and, and control of bleeding, and we, we sort of, in addition to everything that we did, and you know, we oversewed the portal vein uh, in a way that uh, was a repair we thought and eventually what ended up happening was uh, we got him up to the ICU and he exhibited kind of coagulopathic bleeding yeah. and uh, and we decided not to go back because we couldn't think of anything else to do surgically so I mean as Carrie will probably attest to this is um, we do these scenarios on a number of courses and people always turn around to you and say how can we manage this totally catastrophic injury right. but fortunately it is relatively rare um, right. So people aren't exposed to this enough, but 
as you rightly did, you did all the steps logically, methodically, but sometimes the patient's physiology, by the time we get to them, is not really conducive to be salvageable. And Dave, let me ask you this. I've never actually done the Penrose balloon thing that we all see and read about in the books and learn about in our courses. And to me, it just seems like a, an arts and crafts project in the middle of a system. <laughs> like, did it work? How did you, how did you feel that went? It did work. Um, I think the reason that it worked was once I once I saw that I had uh, you know portal vein and pretty significant liver involvement. I actually called in. Uh, we had a, a transplant fellow who was on call and uh, immediately available, and so uh, oh, that's, that's the friend you want. <laughs> yeah, he he came in, and and so there were two of us there, and so one of us you know while one of us was working, the other one put together the Penrose thing. It actually didn't take as long as you might think, if you have the materials available. Um, you know, and, and somebody who, who has thought through it before, it really didn't take that long. It's a couple of sutures and a red rubber catheter, and it didn't take that long to build the thing. Um, so I, I think it's a very reasonable technique if you need it. Um, and, it, and you know, it took a minute or two at most to kind of put it together. So it wasn't as bad as you might think. Interesting. Well, uh, the unicorn of liver injury has occurred, and we've all seen it. <laughs> Can I ask one other question? So, um, and, and this is more um, sequelae. So, you know, you're, the patient's now a month out and has 14 drains from different pancreatic and biliary fistulas. Um, any tips or tricks for sort of longer term management, when to go back, when to operate versus when to sit tight and work through percutaneous means? And what is your overall approach to those things? So if they've got, um, as you say, pancreatic fistulas, biliary fistulas and all that, I think the first stage to any of this thing is to actually go in and do an ERCP, open up that aperture to allow free drainage. If you have free drainage, you solve quite a few of those problems. But if you have ongoing biliary and pancreatic secretions, what I learned during my hepato-pancreatico-biliary days, as um, we call them registrars here, I believe you guys call them residents or chief residents, um, was start them on octreotide infusions. It is like the human araldite. It is very, very <laughs> good at stopping them, but you have to do it as an infusion. And I think we used to do something like, don't quote me on this, 50 mics an hour of this going through, and it really does tend to dry up most biliary-pancreatic secretions. Dave, are you a big believer in octreotide? I, I have definitely used it, and I've had patients where it worked well, and I've had patients where it didn't work well. So I don't know if big believer is the way I'd cast, classify myself, but I, you know, I, I, I become sort of a, uh, you know, I'll use octreotide, voodoo magic, uh, pray to every deity in the phone book. <laughs> I, I use whatever I can in these situations because it, they can be very challenging and and. I think the hardest part is is managing the patient's expectations Yeah, and, um, you know, getting them to understand that, like, you know, by all rights, you should be dead. And um, so this isn't as bad as you might think it is. Yeah. Um, so as I said, Mansour, did you have any cases that you're thinking of today that you want to go over that we haven't touched on? I actually, um, the one I was um, going to talk about was a disruption at the ligament of Kreitz, but you managed to cover that one uh, and exactly in the maneuvers that Dave and myself have discussed. So that was the only one that was actually of real interest because you can actually demystify the anatomy very quickly with that exposure. And amazingly, in surgery, if you have the exposure, surgery becomes really, really straightforward. Yeah. I, I always tell that to the residents. If you can see what you're doing, then anybody can do it. <laughs> yeah. No Jedi yeah. mind tricks for this one. <laughs> so I'll go over a case I had uh, when I was a fellow. There was a... Um, 
guy in his uh, 30s who was working in a trench and his partner was on the backhoe and didn't know that his colleague was in the trench. And he sent the backhoe down to dig the trench and the tine of the backhoe actually went through his right flank and pinned him uh, about six feet deep in a pit. Essentially, they're doing some work on the plumbing along the side of the roads. Um, so he was pinned for about 45 minutes before they could figure out how are we going to get the tine out of him and then get him out of that trench. Um, when he came to us, he showed up in the trauma bay with about a four by four uh, or four by six inch hole in his right flank and his entire small bowel was avulsed out the back. We brought him straight to the OR, um, rinsed him off. And as we, and he was actually hemodynamically okay. He was tacky to like 110. His blood pressures were in the 90s to 100s. He was mentating. He was talking to us. Um, once we got him on the table, we did the X-lap and we pulled all of his small intestine back into his abdomen. What we saw is that because he divulsed all the intestine out, he actually kinked his SMV. And so that's what had stopped the bleeding. But once we got all the intestine back in, he had a, a near full disruption of his SMV and started to hemorrhage. We temporized the hemorrhage with pressure, and now we're looking at an SMV disruption. How do you manage these injuries? The other injuries he had, his right colon was destroyed. We took that out. His right kidney was destroyed. We took that out. So that kind of like complete damage, that's gone. But now we're staring at really where all the major veins of the SMV kind of coalesce and become the actual SMV. That's where the injury was. How would you approach that? So this person's an extremist. I'd tie it off, leave him with an open belly getting back to normal physiology and bringing back um, to actually repair the SMV at a later time. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. You don't want to be trying to reconstruct an SMV, which is hosing given the amount of injury he's had already. Sure. Dave, thoughts from you? I, I agree. You have to, I think, tie that off. And fortunately for venous injuries, um, there's a lot of collateral pathways. Um, repairing that is, is that's something I would call in a consult for somebody who's got extensive experience with uh, you know venous repair or lymphatic repair even uh, they exist uh, people who do those kinds of things uh, it's definitely not me and the risk of you know trauma surgeon putting it together at least in my hands is thrombosis and stricture and things like that so I would I would uh, call for a lifeline on that one as a, as a second stage Sure, that's actually exactly what we did. We tied it off, um, did the open abdomen, put him in the ICU, warmed him up, got his physiology uh, closer to normal. Um, we went back to the OR about four or five hours later. Uh, we called in someone who does this a lot more than us, um, and we opened it up, and we actually did a, um, a saphenous vein graft, kind of a bridge, just to get it open. And then uh, uh, blood thinners, heparin, just tried to keep this thing open while we were actually creating a... Um, um, cadaveric graft to try to get this together. But ultimately, this patient uh, thrombosed everything and, and lost his gut. But I was just, you know, I've always thought about that case and was there anything else we could have or should have done in the beginning um, that would have made much of a difference. But like yeah. Mansour said, their physiology is going to kind of dictate the outcome. So here's an interesting one, especially when it comes to venous reconstruction. I believe trauma surgery is just lots of elective surgery techniques done in a high pressured environment. What you can do, and what I've done um, when I used to do HPV, especially when we were doing some of the cancer resections, and we had to reconstruct the portal vein, taking part of the left renal vein and allowing on the adrenal drainage to drain the kidneys, you could use that as a potential conduit. But any time you repair these venous structures, you are going to get a thrombosis, unfortunately, and it re will recannulate at a later time. But the patient has to be able to survive 
insult to that area to allow it to recannulate. Does that kind of make sense? Sure. Yeah, you got to be able to wait it out. Yeah. And I think these cases have been fantastic. But what it does show is that for a trauma or an acute care surgeon going in, um, you need the right kind of mindset and philosophy just to save the life of a patient, first of all allowing yourself time at a later date to come back in and multiple scenarios in these we've actually called for a specialist in that field or somebody who deals with the elective reconstruction on a daily basis to come and give you a hand there is no shame in calling for people who specialize in certain um, techniques or organs to come and give you a hand once the patient is well and not in extremis no, I think that's a really good point. Dave, was there anything else you wanted to touch on uh, for the trauma cast? No, I, I would echo what Mansoor said that, you know, a good solid elective foundation of hepatobiliary surgery and exposure to those different tics, uh, tips and tricks is definitely helpful. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've been thinking of, um, you know, the, the, the old uh, management, how you manage a Klatskin tumor that's unresectable and how yeah. to bypass the body. All of those lessons, all those things that you learn and and read about those all come into play, I think, in trauma situations. You know, one for your question about the right hepatic duct that was disrupted, you know, one of the things that came into my mind was uh, the old trick of going into the recesses of GANS where the right posterior se sectoral duct drains, mm. and you can do a hepatic OJ there. And that's that's an old trick from uh, the days of the unresectable Klatskin tumors and things like that. So I, I totally echo that, that the, the elective foundation that you learn during training um, very often. I, I'm thinking of, of when I'm in the operating room for trauma situations, I'm thinking back to days of training, like, and how would, you know, how would Dr. So-and-so do this? Yeah. Um, and it, it definitely comes in handy. Mansur, any, uh, any last thoughts? No, I, uh, exactly what David and you yourself had said. I, people come and ask me, especially young trainees going, oh, I want to be a trauma surgeon. Oh, what trauma fellowship shall I do? And I was like, how about you go and learn how to do general surgery first? Yeah. If you can do the general surgery first, the trauma will just follow. Sure. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us. As I said, spanning seven time zones is, a, is quite a feat I don't think we've done before. Um, so I appreciate <laughs> that, both Dave and, uh, and Mansoor for making time in your schedule to get this done. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's great chatting with you both. Great. Thanks. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.